The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring a disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. First, as usual, I want to welcome and thank our new and existing Veritas members. You are keeping Veritas alive. Let me start by saying I had a terrific time at the C-SETI event in Rio Rico, Arizona, and I'm very thankful for having been invited, in addition to enjoying every day, every presentation, and every night under the stars, it was really a great experience to have met some of you Veritas members. I had a chance to have breakfast and dinner with some of you, and I look forward to meeting you in another event in the future. Hello to Mark, Tina, Brian, Anne, Troy, and many others I met from around the world. Now, let me summarize the experience for you. I arrived on Saturday afternoon and met with my friend Paula Harris, who gave me one of her books and some of her DVDs and wrote a very nice dedication on the book. Thank you, Paula. Incidentally, Paula and I did my very first Veritas video interview, which I will share with you soon. Later on the first day, we met Dr. Greer for an introduction to the conference. There were about 220 participants. 
Later that evening, I went to dinner with a Veritas member and then proceeded to the first night of making contact. A large number of people had green lasers that were pointed out to the sky. All of a sudden, sitting right across from me was this lady who had such a powerful green laser that it looked like Luke Skywalker's lightsaber, but much longer. It had a wrench of 100 miles. That thing was just absolutely incredible. It made Dr. Greer's laser look like a flashlight. Her name is Dean, and I had to ask her where she bought it, and she has already provided the information. So thank you very much, Dean. I really enjoyed spending time with you. And I had a great time sitting so close to you watching that torch. Also, something else about Dean. A couple of hours after the night event started, and we were meditating, something started buzzing under her chair. So I whispered, Dean, I think your cell phone is ringing. And she said, it's not my cell phone. It's a UFO detector. This lady, who reminded me of my own mother, had the most sophisticated equipment right in front of me. At any rate, I saw the great presentations from Dr. Link Attire from the Phoenix Lights, Dr. Ted Loader talking about free energy devices and updates on Project Orion. The second night had another making contact night. I honestly can't say I saw a UFO. I can tell you I saw a lot of what looked like shooting stars and a few questionable blinking ones. But it was so fast that I couldn't even grab my camera. It was really a great experience to be surrounded by so many like-minded people meditating and, and creating an atmosphere of intent, of positive intent. Then the next day I had breakfast and dinner with a few Veritas members as well. I will post the pictures on the forum. That day, Dr. Greer handed a communication, that's the second day by the way, handed a communication intended for President Obama. He was supposed to do this on Sunday, but decided to do it before. If you follow Dr. Greer's work, you already know what I'm talking about. I've already included the links on our weekly newsletter, so you can see the original documentation that was sent to President Obama. Now, let me tell you about the third day, Monday. Colin Andrews and I were supposed to conduct a video interview after his presentation and before Dr. Greer's presentation, just in the middle, the intermission. However, Collins went into overtime because his presentation was loaded. It was revealing and very, very emotional. After his presentation was over, people flocked to him immediately for a book signing. Needless to say, there wasn't any time left for an interview. Nonetheless, I was able to capture a few minutes of video, which is now posted at the forum, where he said the following. The end, with some lessons learned, is really what this is all about. Uh, it's consciousness, um, respect, love, compassion, and the new paradigm is underway. Colin, what you said today was a new revelation. Even when you and I did our interview, you never revealed what you said today about what happened in your early childhood. What motivated you to say this today? I, I, I've been motivated um, by an inner sense, an inner fear, that if one is expecting others to reveal truths, those that are unpalatable perhaps, that we also have our own secrets, 
that are useful in the general public domain um, and that whilst in the past I have feared credibility problems, reactions of the engineered social scene that has been set for us you know, by the year, just the term UFO, uh, a lot of people uh, immediately you're filtered out of society. Uh, and I felt this was the time to lay it all on the line because I think the little piece that we often hold ourselves and that I did have now stated uh, not only makes me feel better, but it's part of the new paradigm uh, to embrace it all. Uh, Stephen has done the same thing. Lynn here just yesterday revealed something that she had neither ever talked about before. So I think perhaps you might say that um, just like timing, this is the time. Uh, we, we have to be brave, I, I, all of us. This is a time, it's not to sit on the fence. Uh, it is a time to be hold firm, to have true representation, step forward, and to help us with the knowledge that we need to uh, save our planet and save our species and uh, all other life forms on the planet. It's, it's a very, we've reached a very important, critical point, and we need the cooperation of all levels of uh, structure and institutions and government. Uh, this is no more time, no more lies, no more spin. It can't work. It, it simply cannot work in the new paradigm. So those are the, uh, that's where we're headed. So I felt that I, this was the time to state my truth. And in closing, your friends Pat, David, and Paul, thank you for what you're doing, and everybody else. Thank you, Mel. I respect what you're doing and, and allowing us a decent, uncensored voice to the people. And uh, you are a very good example of the new generation of media that we need right out there, big time, internationally. And I thank you personally uh, for your work. Thank you, Colin. It was a pleasure meeting you finally, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you, Mel. Take care. Those were enlightening words, and I'm honored and flattered by his last remarks. Then, immediately after, and prior to Dr. Greer's interview, I talked to Dr. Greer to see if there had been any reaction regarding the communication he sent to President Obama. Again, the video is posted at the Manticore Forum, but here's the brief audio. Greer, can you give me a quick reaction on your expectations of the documentation that's going to President Obama? Well, I will tell you what the, uh, the G7 head of state and his team uh, conveyed to me after they got it, that it was fantastic and devastating. It's moving, there, or let's just put it this way. The world and the cosmos is moving, and it's gonna move with or without the governments of the world. So they will rise and fall by how they react to that briefing. And by you taking this to the grassroots level, I think it's making the difference. Well, one wanted to be discreet, but uh, instead of, I gave Clinton six years or seven years before I came forward with that information about what I was doing. Nine months is, was long enough for Obama, because my feeling is that we're just uh, fresh out of time. Our planet uh, can't wait to another term or another, there's always an excuse in politics of why not to deal with something now and why not to, look at that awesome picture. But anyway, that, I think that's the key thing, is to understand there's always a, a political excuse not to deal with it. But ultimately, it has to be dealt with because it's the right thing. We thank you for what you do. Thank you. So then I left. I could not stay and attend the third Making Contact night. 
I had a hunch that that night, the third night, was going to be the contact night. I arrived home later in the evening and received an email from Mark, one of our Veritas members, in which he described that night and said this, quote, Well, saw a few things tonight. A Golden Globe, a few flashes, stealth helicopters, surveillance aircraft, black ops into Dr. Greer's room. Not kidding. Dr. Greer draws the attention of somebody with aircraft and ground teams. I'm favorably impressed by Dr. Greer. He's drawing heat. Unquote. Throughout the next day, I started getting email from other Veritas members who said, quote unquote, we made contact. I had to call Mark and get him on the record. So let me have Mark share it with you. Folks, I just want to let you know that I had to leave the CCD event a little bit early. In other words, I was able to get to the last conference. However, I was not able to participate in the evening events. So why don't I let uh, Mark, one of our Veritas members, tell you what transpired after I left. Hello, Mark. Hi, Mel. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, after you left about 7.30, I went out on the deck of the facility we were at, uh, where we normally gather for 8 o'clock, uh, and I noticed that there were at least four aircraft in the air in the immediate facility, or vicinity, rather. And the reason I noticed them is because I had seen over the last few days that we were there that there wasn't really any air traffic in that area. So it was uh, unusual, anomalous, in fact. And uh, here's what I saw. Uh, about 7.30, quarter to 8, I saw, I think, probably two fairly high-flying aircraft, probably interceptor jets, up above the 20,000-foot mark, so it's hard to say what they were. Uh, they were in a broad pattern. Uh, they hung around for a while, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes. could be a bit longer. We were all distracted by two other aircraft, one uh, which was flying uh, a pattern on station, a boat on the U.S.-Mexican border south of us, which had a light pattern on it that looked like an AWACS, and the uh, other aircraft that everybody was speculating about appeared in the east, and it was really only signified by a bright red navigation light that didn't strobe, and everybody was speculating that it was an unmanned uh, reconnaissance vehicle, but uh, that, that uh, aircraft came in closer to, um, to the, the assembled crowd there, and we could t- I could tell right away that it was a rotor-wing aircraft by the sound of the rotors, and so that helicopter uh, flew a pattern around us out about, oh, five, six, seven, ten miles in a circle back and forth. would go back, interact with the AWACS, come close to it, come back to see us. At least once that helicopter went off after about an hour and a half to refuel, reappeared about 20 minutes later, uh, continued the same pattern of flight, sometimes high, sometimes low. And about, oh, 10.30 p.m., uh, it came in, you could hear it coming in from the southeast, flew over the facility at no more than about a thousand feet, and uh, disappeared off towards the uh, northwest. Uh, sorry, everybody, I'm in the airport, so you're just hearing a call here. And it caused a lot of speculation about what was going on. Uh, so, yeah, that, that aircraft went over us at a fairly low altitude, disappeared off towards the uh, northwest, it looked like to me, and then I didn't see it again. I left the assembled group about oh, 11.15 or so because uh, I had to travel early the next morning, and that's I needed a bit of sleep. Uh, this caused uh, a bunch of speculation amongst the crowd. 
about what was going on there, uh, Stephen Greer reported to us, as had been intimated early in the day by uh, Colin Andrews, that they had seen a very close and low helicopter while they were having lunch at the uh, resort. It came in fairly close and uh, pointed some sort of an electronic device or recording device at them. There was a helmeted guy in the door of that aircraft and the aircraft dispatched. Uh, they, people speculated it was the same one. About 10.30 p.m., quite interestingly, uh, Colin Andrews reappeared on the deck. I watched him go by me. There was a discussion up by the podium. And then uh, Colin Andrews and uh, Stephen Greer's security personnel, at least two or three of them, left uh, at a rapid pace in a purposeful way. Uh, Stephen Greer then reported to the crowd that uh, he had, uh, or that uh, Colin Andrews had spotted people with military bearing, perhaps under arms. That was mentioned, though I don't know whether or not it was verified, that were uh, hovering around uh, Stephen Greer's room, perhaps with the intent of entering. Uh, That wasn't verified, at least while I was there. Uh, And then shortly after that, there was an event in the back parking lot whereby it looked like uh, the sheriff had shown up and there was lights uh, going on a marked car and there was a certain kerfuffle going on down there. Um, there we go. They're just yelling at me. I can't even hide in the washroom from these guys. Yes, yeah, so hold on. Let, let them let them talk. Let them talk for. Okay, go ahead. I think they're done. Anyway, um, it was reported to us that uh, by Stephen Greer that there was a security breach, and that uh, his folks were off dealing with it, and that we shouldn't worry. Uh, the security personnel that were left on the deck kept us there so that we couldn't go off and have a look to see what was going on. I'm speculating that the appearance of the sheriff's car was perhaps in response to a call made by Stephen Greer's security team uh, about uh, in relation to these folks. Now, other things that were revealed to us in general discussion while this was all going on is that uh, people at the hotel had seen uh, low-flying aircraft in days previous to the conference, and that uh, this also led Stephen Greer to report to us uh, about his various... uh, experiences uh, with this kind of uh, harassment and, uh, you know, provocative behavior on behalf of uh, unnamed and unknown authorities. But the unnamed and unknown authorities certainly seem to be able to command uh, the most most modern ordinance available uh, in the U.S. So it was, uh, from that perspective, quite interesting for the assembled crowd, notwithstanding what we saw in terms of uh, uh, potentially extraterrestrial presence or vehicles, uh, one thing we can say for sure is whatever we were doing there at the C-SETI conference was certainly of interest to the powers that be to the point that they sent out a fair number of reconnaissance vehicles to uh, see what we were up to. And, of course, I left, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I left... Uh, after the last conference, just because I had to return, and I could not attend the the, the last uh, making contact night, if you will. And in my mind, I thought, you know, what if these guys see something? And you told me that you saw a few things. Can you elaborate? Oh, yes. I think we, uh, I think I'd seen before, uh, on previous nights there near where I live, um, I saw Behind the cloud cover that was uh, coming up just at dusk, I uh, saw a blue light that sustained itself for a couple of seconds at about the 5,000-foot elevation that was witnessed by everybody. I saw two golden 
globe type, globe boy type. Uh, only way to describe them is craft. That's the way the literature would look at them. I saw one towards the southeast and another one towards the northeast, uh, and uh, various other what they call flash bulbs, uh, blinkers that appeared through the course of the evening. So uh, there was some speculation about how many were in the area. The, the equipment that uh, the CSETI team had set up, all of was indicating everything from magnetometers to elect- electric phase shifter indicators were all going off all the time. So there was a fair bit of activity in the atmosphere. That's certain. Well, and this is something that Mark saw himself. You know, I did see a few questionable things in the air. I, I cannot confirm what they were. They, they could have been shooting stars. They could have been anything. Sometimes they, they, they were blinking, but I'm not going to just come out and say that they were UFOs. But when I left, and Mark, as, as a, an amateur astronomer, has more experience in detecting and using peripheral vision to do this, would you say the last night was the, more, the, the, the night where you saw more prevalence of these objects, Mark? Oh, yes, I would say that uh, certainly once that I had seen in the past, I saw representations there. Uh, blinkers, flash bulbs, these are all quite calm, and I live in a part of North America where I also get an awful lot of satellite activity. So I've learned how to distinguish a lot of these things. Uh, what I see on a fairly regular basis where I live, or it can be described in the current or the classic literature, is golden globoids. So they're round orbs. The way I describe them uh, where I live and what are clear to me is they tend to come in way below the air traffic. Uh, They tend to be bright. They tend to be larger than Jupiter. It's quite obvious what they are, and they will respond to telepathic communication. Uh, These craft or whatever we saw hanging around there didn't manifest itself the way I've seen things in the past. They came in, they came out, they... uh, phase shifted into to the visual range and then quickly left again, and this was explained by uh, Stephen Greer, is uh, their response to uh, understanding that they were under surveillance by the powers that be, perhaps with uh, ill or malicious intent. And folks, this is Mark, uh, this is a person with a PhD, so I, I trust what he's saying. He was there with me. You had about 200 and some other witnesses with you, right? Oh, yes, and I was sitting on the back row with the guys in the folding lawn chairs, where comfortable chairs, and this was all witnessed by a couple of people who were sitting with me, uh, retired military, senior flag rank type folks, things that people reveal to you over a couple of days that they don't necessarily put on their name badges. So the conclusion we had amongst those of us who discussed it was we weren't sure what we were seeing in terms of uh, extra correct terrestrial craft manifestation, but we all concluded that we were being surveilled by uh, something that certainly looked like military aircraft, and thus we conclude that whatever was going on, the C-SETI event over the weekend was of interest to the powers that be to the point that they sent out at least several aircraft to keep an eyeball on us. Well... Mark, I really appreciate uh, the feedback you're giving giving us here because I, I I got your email and I, I it was better if I could get it with your voice. I wish you a safe flight uh, home and let's keep in touch. We'll keep in touch. Thanks a lot, Mel. Keep up the good work. Stay safe. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye for now. You see, I'm always the person who says good things happen to those who wait. I should have stayed. Don't you think? 
I could have given you my own account. In summary, and in my humble opinion, Dr. Stephen Greer is the real deal. He is taking this closer to a grassroots level and moving this closer forward. As Dr. Greer says, if the governments don't want to move, then get out of the way. Some have emailed saying we should meet again at James Gilliland's ranch next year. Well, I can't guarantee it, but I've already had communication with James. He's a great guy. So Veritas members listening, let's start thinking about this. Maybe we can all meet again. This time, I'm bringing my green laser per my new friend's recommendation. Right, Dean? If you need to get in touch with me, just send an email to mail at veritasshow.com. Now, take a look at our future guests, which are listed on our website. You have the opportunity to submit your questions on the Manticore Forum. There is a thread for these guests, and you can include your questions right there. And this is the last weekend for our poll, would you be taking the swine flu vaccine? The poll is holding steady at 97% no and 3% yes. What is the 3% thinking? Now, someone sent me a message today saying, quote, Mel, did you see this video from Finland's Minister of Health? Unquote. I went to see the video, which, mind you, has over 1 million views on YouTube. And it was my friend, Dr. Rauni Kilde. But I know of, Veritas is the only program that has interviewed Dr. Kilde in the United States, at least recently. Isn't that strange? Do you know that she hasn't even been able to listen to the show we did together? Quote, unquote, they are blocking her from doing so. So, Dr. Kilde, I'm going to mail you some CDs so you can listen and keep the interviews for your records. Well, this monologue took a little longer than usual, but I just had to share with you my experience at C-SETI. To Dr. Greer and his team, especially Linda Willits and everybody else who worked so feverishly to had a great conference, I want to thank you. And what I'm about to say, I wasn't even expecting to include it. And I hate to be cryptic or vague, but I just received a message from one of our past guests, I cannot name the person, telling me about something that's developing. It involves our military, it involves our intelligence, and it has to do with, I can, I, can, I don't know if I can say this, but two weeks ago, some news coming from another part of the world and a big circular cloud. Remember that? That's all I have to say. Apparently that's not happening only in that part of the world. It's happening here and apparently it has some people high in our intelligence apparatus a little bit concerned. Once I'm allowed to talk and, and you know my promise to you, if I get information and I'm allowed to, to share it and it's not going to put anybody in danger, I will share it. But if I'm told this is for your information and, and, and please keep it confidential for now, I will. So I cannot be specific. Okay? So stay tuned to the Veritas show, to the blog, and to the forum. And once I get a green light to talk about this, I will do so. And now, get ready to spend the night with one of the best UFO illustrators of modern times and a great UFO researcher, Jim Nichols, is coming up next. If you want to believe, Stop this audio now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. 
Most of the great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. This is Dr. Stephen Greer, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Jim Nichols was born a post-war baby boomer in 1948 in the flatlands of northwestern Ohio. By the time he had reached his senior year of high school, Jim's restless creativity fueled in him an abiding ambition to become an artist. Even while serving two years of Army service, he managed to complete a correspondence course in commercial arts. Following his discharge, Jim resettled in Tucson, Arizona in 1972. For a time, cactus, sagebrush, mountains, and skies dominated his artistry, and he made something of a name for himself as a painter of southwestern landscapes. By the late 1970s, however, he discovered he could not be content to limit his art to just desert scenes. Popular films of the day, like Star Wars and Close Encounters, rekindled the love of science fiction that he knew as a youngster. Soon, alien landscapes and spaceships captivated his creativity. Beginning in 1980 and throughout the following decade, Jim painted numerous UFO illustrations that have been published internationally. His notoriety in the field of UFO research earned him a co-host seat on a weekly public access television program in Tucson, produced by Ted Lohman, entitled UFO AZ Talks. This popular award-winning program ran from 1991 through 1997 and was aired on public access channels across the country. Currently, after so many years of painting fine art and illustration, Jim has expanded his creative talents to include sculpting as well, thus bringing an added dimension to his legacy of artistic skill. And directly from the beautiful desert of Tucson, Arizona, tonight's special guest is Jim Nichols. Hello, Jim, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Very good, Mel. How are you doing? Great, and it's my pleasure to have you on, Jim. First, let uh, let me tell the audience how I met you. I saw a couple of uh, your presentations at a, at a few MUFON meetings, but the first time I remember sitting in the audience and, and looking at the screen before you started your lecture, and I was looking at this beautiful UFO art that I had seen in many places throughout the years and which reminded me of the 1950s movies. But then I said, wow, this man is using all this great art and then I realized you were the artist. So it was a treat for me to finally meet the artist of all those paintings I was seeing everywhere. Even Bob Dean had one of your paintings in his office when he worked at, at uh, FEMA at, uh, in Pima County. You're not only a great artist, uh, Jim, but you're also a great researcher. And first, I would like to, uh, as we usually do on this show, uh, with all the guests that are new, why don't you tell us how you started getting to the UFO topic and what shaped you to who you became later in life? <laughs> Come on, man. I'm 61 years and we only got two hours here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, you know, I'm like I said, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer, and I've I've grown up with this. This is, uh, you know, UFOs were were a big topic in the '50s, and and then we went into the '60s, and we had the space race and all that stuff, and uh, and of course, all through that those those eras, we had uh, wonderful, wonderful science fiction Hollywood movies, and. Uh, and all the whole the whole package has been just a huge inspiration for me. Uh, to be, I was I was always fascinated with, with art and everything. And, uh, and uh, in my senior year of high school, I decided I, I was seriously going to pursue art and uh, and illustration. And uh, but I did not at that time say I'm going to be a UFO artist. I'm going to be a UFO illustrator. I was. <laughs> Probably the farthest thing from my mind at the time, uh, but I did. Uh, uh, I was drafted in '69. Spent two years in the military, and so that disrupted my my college ambitions. But while I was in the military, I did manage to complete a correspondence course in uh, commercial illustration. So I left the military with that skill. And uh, then they resettled here in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Originally, I was from Ohio. And, um, uh, you know, the the Tucson, uh, the southwestern Arizona landscape, was like, it was like I had been, you know, transported into an alien world. It was so radically different from what I'd grown up with in the Midwest. So I began painting scenes of... of uh, Desert landscapes, and then kind of earned a certain reputation as a Southwest landscape artist. Um, but that uh, then in 1980, um, well after after the Star Wars films and Star Wars came out and Close Encounters came out, that kind of re rekindled my interest in science fiction themes, and I started doing science fiction art. In fact, I had a display of. Uh, my science fiction paintings at the Flandreau Planetarium for a time here at the University of Arizona. And um, at the same time, I was getting more interested in uh, UFOs based on uh, uh, contact I had with a a retired uh, lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, Wendell Stevens, who actually lives here in Tucson. You know Wendell. Sure. And... I spent a morning with him in April of 1980 that completely blew my mind. It was like it was like taking the red pill on the Matrix, <laughs> and uh, I could see that this the UFO stuff was was serious. That this was a there was something serious going on. That we were being contacted, or at least planet Earth was being visited by intelligences from outside, from elsewhere in the universe. And I was so impressed by his research, and I was so impressed by uh, the things he shared with me that morning, that I I wanted to lend my artistic skills in UFO research, and that's that's really the that was the pivotal uh, moment in my life where I started doing uh, actually serious UFO real, uh, illustrations. You said uh, when you were a child, quote so. 
if they were not built by earth humans, that meant they must have been built by somebody from somewhere else, leaving the unavoidable conclusion that intelligence from other worlds far out in space were responsible for these flying contraptions, right? Yeah. Obviously, we were not alone in the universe. Wasn't that easy? What clarity of perception? What insight? Imagine, I'm reading your quote, by the way. Yeah. Imagine such a simple common sense deduction from a kid in junior high who needs PhDs. And Jim, I must tell you, that pretty much sums it up for me. As a child, I thought like you, and the fact that no one could answer my questions to my satisfaction is what drove me to, to my continuance with my research all the way up to this date. Like you, I have never seen a UFO living in the desert that has changed. Has that changed for you, or are we still waiting to see one? No, I have not, uh, I've not seen a UFO. I've seen uh, I've seen uh, meteors. I've seen uh, aurora borealis. I've seen bolides. I've seen weather balloons. I've seen everything but uh, a classic daylight silvery disc UFO, which is if I, I it has to be for me it has to be that I have to see a, a daylight disc, a three dimensional object in broad daylight that I know is not conventional flying machine. And then I will say, yes, I've seen a UFO. Uh, right. Night lights, light, weird lights in the sky at night, to me, don't, don't fill the bell. I have to see the real 3D thing in broad daylight, and then I will say, yes, I have seen a UFO. Until that happens, um, no, I have not. You know, Jim, lately in the UFO circle, there's a camp that says all ETs are benevolent, and another side says that uh, there are some that are malevolent. I'm on the fence on this one. Why? Because at least on this planet, there is good and bad. In the vast universe, couldn't we apply the same theory? And at the same time, and this is what keeps me on the fence, one could assume that if we are being visited, those visitors must be more advanced than us. And if they have not attempted to take us over, at least overtly, that makes me wonder if every advanced civilization outside of our planet has evolved to the point of no intervention, no violence, and high spirituality that parallels their technology. We, in turn, are the opposite to the latter. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> wow. wow. You've been talking to Stephen Greer, I think. Ah, uh, yes, last uh -huh. week, actually. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, <laughs> I saw the, uh, the recent uh, Project Camelot, Camelot interview. <laughs> Yes. Or, or Carrie Cassidy really took Steve to, Stephen Greer to task on that. And, and frankly, I, I tend to agree with uh, Carrie. And uh, not, to, not to sound like an alarmist or anything, but the universe is a big, big place. And we are only just now beginning, you know, we've only just, you know, the last, you know, Within the last 50 years, we've only set foot on the moon. It's like, how can we draw conclusions about the entire universe based on our limited experience? So it's like, um, yes, I hold, I hold <laughs> for the fact that we could contact a benevolent uh, extraterrestrial race, and in fact, I think we have. But to, to make a blanket statement to say they're all good or they're all bad is... is uh, is you can't make that statement based on such limited experience, right? Okay, absolutely. And it's just that's another just a common sense thing, and and, and um, you wouldn't 
you wouldn't wander down the, the alleys of New York City and assume that everybody in New York City, having never been there before, and assume everybody there is nice and benevolent. Um, we don't know what's out there. We don't know... Uh, we, we, we just simply don't have enough information or experience in that, that field to draw any kind of conclusion one way or the other. Well, that's, that's why I say I'm on the fence, because... I, I think I'm on on Carrie Cassidy's side because if our microcosm of of a world, planet Earth, is a foundation of of that knowledge that exactly. not everything is good or bad, mm-hmm. you know, we can come to the conclusion that the magnitude of the universe may may be the same. But at the same time, if there were malevolent species out there, don't you think they would have taken us over by now? That's the the speculation that many people have. Um. Possibly, possibly. Um, there's also there's also the possibility that they could be malevolent, but malevolent, but not overtly so. They could be right. covertly malevolent, and it's not that they would, you know, with their photon torpedoes and laser blasters, like in uh, ID four, where they just you know overtly attack the planet. Right. Uh, I think there's other ways that they could. Uh, ov- covertly subvert the human population without the mass population even realizing what's happening. And that's exactly, once again, why I say that I'm on the fence, because I think if they are doing this, it could be on a covert basis. I mean, the alleged reptilian race that may be the one keeping us under their choke. But Jim, why do you think definitive answers to the flying saucer enigma still remain stubbornly out of reach? Well, you know, it's I got started in, in UFOs uh, studying specific cases, and then it would case after case after case with with really good evidence, uh, credible witnesses, photographs, physical evidence, blah blah blah. All this, all all the things that would stand up in a court of law that say, yeah, there's something specifically tangible and real is happening here. All these cases get sandbagged. And get dismissed. Uh, no, the, it was swamp gas, or um, or like Ed Walters. No, he had the model hidden in his his attic at Gulf Breeze, and it's, he didn't take a picture of UFO. He, it was a model, and and it's like case after case after case gets sandbagged. And the bottom line, the final official uh, line that that is sold to the public is nothing out of the ordinary exists, and anybody who sees a UFO or claims to have an experience like that is a complete crackpot or an idiot or they're they're just doing it to get publicity for themselves. So it's like this this consistent wall of denial has in itself become uh, uh, my fascination. What what is it within our culture that blocks uh, the acceptance of the possibility that, yes, we might not be alone in the universe. That, to me, has become more fascinating than individual UFO cases in themselves. And I guess, I guess they call it now exopolitics, but it's, it's the, the, the social impact of extraterrestrial contact of the planet and why we have such a resistance to it. That, in and of itself, has become the most fascinating area of interest for me at this time. 
And you mentioned the psychology of denial, which I want to touch in a minute. But sure. before that, just to tell the audience, uh, they all know these cases. 1947, Roswell UFO crash, mm-hmm. weather balloon. Weather balloon. George Adamski's The Venusians, l- lunatic crackpot. The 60s, UFOs, Michigan Woods, swamp gas. Billy Meyer, uh, a hoax. Ed Walters, Gulf Breeze, fate. Bob Dean's NATO UFOs assessment never existed. England scrub circles, and I've had uh, Colin Anders with me discuss mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. for long. Hoax by Doug and Dave. I mentioned this because after looking into this subject for so many years, I have come not to the conclusion, but to the suspicion that when the intelligence apparatus swarms like bees to discredit, debunk, or ridicule someone, I'm starting to see a pattern. And that pattern may actually mean the accounts may be true. Why don't we see the same discrediting effort in other cases? You said it best, quote, no matter how credible the eyewitness or how compelling the evidence in any UFO sighting report, it constitutes no proof in the face of Pentagon or national media assessments. In legal terms, this is the equivalent of conviction without due process. I think the Billy Meyer case is a prime example. For years, I thought it was a hoax because all I heard was it is a hoax. But after looking into this further, the more I see... An escalation to discredit, the more I see the possibility that indeed the case may be true. What's your opinion on the Billy Meyer case, by the way? Well, it reminds me of the Shakespeare. Shakespeare, what was it in Hamlet? says, Methinks thou, pro- me thou protest too much. And I think that's, that's my assessment of government denial. It's like you, you protest so much and you resist this so much, it's like, wow, then something really important must be happening here. Precisely. And uh, I must say it was the Billy Meyer case that, that, that you know, uh, put me into the UFO illustration game to begin with. Um, I met Wendell when he was right in the midst of his investigation in Switzerland. And when all this information was, was hot, it was, it was fresh, and it was incredible. And uh, it was the, the, the photographs that Wendell was sharing that uh, originally fascinated me. But then more than that was reading what, the, reading what the Pleiadians themselves had to say. And that, after a while, became much more fascinating than the, the razzle-dazzle spaceships they were flying. It's like they, here was, to me, uh, a prototypical benevolent, extraterrestrial contact that I would most want to be, what most want to experience. And the, the, Meyer was not abducted. Uh, they met him face to face. They asked him, would you like to, would you like to have a contact with us where we can impart information to you? And if not, we'll pack our bags and go someplace else. And it's like, well, that's how it should be. It should be respectful of, of one, one, uh, Extra, one race to another, was in one individual to another. It's like, and they were very respectful, and the information they shared was was very uplifting. It was very spiritual, and it, and it showed this. Like, wait a minute, it's like we are, uh, we we share the same uh, consciousness with these beings. It's, we're all, we may live on opposite ends of the universe, but we are expressions of the same consciousness. And it's like that. That was just brilliant. And it's like, that's the kind of information that is valuable to Earth humans. So, and then the, the, uh, the knee-jerk reaction against Billy Meyer, and it's like people would just come out of the woodwork 
who just hated Meyer, who who ridiculed him, who tore him down. And I said, what is, it's out of all proportion to what this man is sharing with the world. So it's like, yeah, okay, well, something's amiss here. And uh, it's like, the, the more they tried to tear Billy down, to me, it's like this, the more credibility it gave him. And that's exactly, it. I used to be one of those people who believe it was a hoax. Mm-hmm. But then after doing this show for almost a year now, mm-hmm. I can see the, the parallels between those. Let me give you another example. Mm-hmm. Uh, another case where a lot of people in the UFO community, as well as other radio hosts, totally believed that Lieutenant Colonel Philip J. Corso is a lie and that he wrote the book with the help of Bill Burns to le- leave a legacy for his grandchildren. I don't have enough information to know if what Corso was saying is true or not. But once again, notice the effort to discredit him. That right. his name does not that his name does not appear in certain list military lists. So what? Right. How many times have names disappeared from lists? Bob Lazar is another example. Do you see the trend I'm the trend I'm referring to? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I see the establishment just simply trying to shore up their own uh power and uh uh, authority, but uh, you know, I've I've interviewed Colonel Corso myself, and he seemed very credible. And uh, you can cross-reference some of the things he says, and it's like, yeah, it it seems to hold up. And many people don't know that this debunking campaign is very active with the intelligence apparatus. In fact, here's a quote from Al Chop, U.S. Air Force Project Blue Book's civilian press officer. Quote, We've been ordered to work up a national debunking campaign, planting articles in magazines, and arranging broadcasts to make UFO reports sound like poppycock. Unquote. It's a very effective campaign, and it might be important to note that the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, was officially established two weeks after the alleged UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico. And here's another parallel I see between you and I, Jim. The psychology of denial that you were just mentioning. It drives us to find the motives and meanings behind the social obstructions hindering serious UFO investigation. What is your opinion of experiencing official disclosure in the next few years and the psychology psychology of denial? Oh, boy. Um... Well, my latest blog on my website, uh, blog number 21, is called Disclosure. And I think it uh, really uh, addresses this issue very, very directly. Um, I must tell you, I was was involved with uh, Bob Dean back in the late 90s with his uh, his, uh, Stargate International project, which was to bring congressional hearings... Uh, congressional disclosure hearings, uh, public hearings. He was trying to establish uh, public hearings with people in uh, the military and uh, other individuals that he knew that, that where they could come forth and and testify in open uh, open session, open congressional sessions, and tell what they knew about the UFO issue, and to be able to tell it publicly without fear of uh, prosecution for violating their security oaths, so that this this whole issue could be brought forth to the public. And uh, I must I was right at the time I was writing uh, editorials for his Stargate International newsletter, and we were we were. <laughs> 
we're all full of uh, idealism and enthusiasm and think that we could really pull this off because Bob had some, Bob had a, a huge, um, uh, uh, a number of people that he had, had put together to make this thing come, come to fruition. And uh, it all just kind of dissolved. And uh, in the years since then, it's like I've learned more about the cover-up, more about our government's involvement, deep, deep involvement with uh, extraterrestrials and so forth. And it's like, I think, disclosure at this point, to expect Congress, a congressional hearing, or to expect the President of the United States even to come forward and give a, a formal disclosure, I think, is is very remote, very remote. And especially when you dig into the very, very real possibility that uh, President Eisenhower back in 1954 may have, in fact, made a covert treaty with an extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional group that was completely outside the scope of the Constitution or, or congressional oversight. So it's like, in, in essence, a secret government was in fact created to manage this, this uh, alien treaty that, it, that is completely outside the range of, of, uh, of congressional uh, control. And I want to talk, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I I want to touch the Eisenhower part in a few minutes. And what you said just comes to to mind, the, what is it, uh, I forgot what law it is, but uh, yes, we cannot, uh, our president cannot engage in in any agreements outside of the United States without the approval of uh, uh, Congress. So, but the reason why I ask you about that disclosure is because I just, as you said, I interviewed Dr. Stephen Greer, mm-hmm. a few days ago, and we discussed this at, le- at length. Mm-hmm. He uh, is taking this closure to a grassroots level since he doesn't believe this closure may or will not happen through official sources. He says disclosure is already happening, right. but we have to find the clues. It's subtle disclosure in order right. to avoid the crumbling of our foundations. Do you agree with that statement? Uh, I think uh, I think it's a, it's it's prudent. It's a prudent approach. Uh, let me let me just we we talk a lot about cover up, and we talk about the heavy handed of the the, the the military and the the, the CIA and the, and the intelligence and how they control this secrecy. The flip side of that is that yes, you don't get a, a an official statement from the president or from the Congress or from the Defense Department saying, yes, UFOs are real. Okay. You get from them nothing nothing outside the range of what is normal exists. But on the other flip side of that, you go back to the 50s, we have been given a steady diet of of, of UFOs, space travel, extraterrestrials, uh, science fiction, a steady diet of it, non-stop since the 1950s. And if you look at that, you look at the flip side of that, yes, you, the United States population has been slowly being prepared for the idea, to get used to the idea that we are not alone in the universe. So yeah, on one hand, yes, there is rigid denial. On the other hand, there's there's an incredible program of information that has been 
an inundation of, of information in, in the popular media, movies, TV shows, books, uh, tabloid newspapers, about a nonstop disclosure that, yes, we are not alone in the universe. If you were to walk down Main Street of the United States today and ask virtually any citizen, what does an alien look like? And they would, I guarantee you, they would probably describe a gray. Yes. With the big eyes, and it's like, Mel, they have, they have, this is disclosure. They are being conditioned to accept this expanded view of the universe. Without, without crumbling foundations. Without crumbling, yes. In a, in a way that um, would not create a general sense of panic. Right. Okay. Right. So, yes, yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's uh, secrecy on the other hand. Yes, there is disclosure, and it's been steady since the 1950s. On your website, I saw the name of former director of the CIA, Vice Admiral Roscoe Hillencutter, mm -hmm. which reminded me of what Bob Dean said on our show about some of the information that allegedly Gary McKinnon, mm -hmm. the British hacker, had found mm -hmm. about two carriers, one with the name of Roscoe Hillencutter, and the, the other escapes me. And the fact the aircraft carrier is not listed with the Navy, and he came to the conclusion that it could be used by our top-secret space program. Exactly. Have you looked into the secret space program, Jim? Well, uh, let, me just, let me just give you a quote here from uh, General Nathan, Nathan Twining. Uh, and this is what he told um, Harry Truman back in 1947 after the Roswell crash. And he, he pointed out to Truman that the alien issue was bigger than the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb project, and required that it be managed on a larger scale and obviously for a longer period. They would form nothing less than a government within the government, sustaining itself from presidential administration to presidential administration, regardless of whatever political party took power, and they would ruthlessly guard their secrets while evaluating every new bit of information on flying saucers they received. Now, that tells me that they have, since at least uh, 1947, we have had a program, a secret program in place to study and back engineer and whatever with captured uh, downed uh, UFOs, downed saucers, and that that you can only extrapolate where 50, 60 years of that technology has gone into black projects, right? And where has so much of our, our, our uh, gross national product gone into is these black projects. You know, the we, 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 trillions of dollars of the taxpayers' money disappears, and where does it go? Black projects. So it's like there's this whole other world that is completely science fiction, and it's completely real, and it's just beyond our grasp. I've been to the gate there at Area 51, and I've st I stood there uh, looking at the uh, the guards there and, and the cameras that were focused on me and all this, and I said, I'm th which side of the fence is the real real? Are we living a fantasy? Here, you know, worried about uh, gas prices and uh, trip to Disneyland and and the the economy and all this stuff is like is is this just window dressing to entertain us? While the real real is living in a world of of quantum technology that can that that has that has mastered 
interstellar space travel. Um, you look at uh, you know, the quote of Ben Rich. I mean, uh, Ben Rich is a uh, former head of uh, the Skunk Works, uh, Lockheed Skunk Works at Area 51. And he said, you know, we can do all these things. He says, but they're locked up in black projects, and they would never benefit. The it would take an act of God for these these projects to ever, ever benefit the rest of humanity. It was well, if they don't benefit humanity, who in the hell do they benefit? Exactly, military industrial complex. Yeah, yeah. Or whoever the mil- yeah at this point, who does the military industrial complex answer to? Exactly. Right. And let me just uh, also, in the quote that you read from uh, General Twining, let me just uh, finish it because you didn't sure. finish it. Yeah. A quote, but at the same time, they would allow this closure of some of the most far-fetched information, whether true or not, because it would help create a climate of public attitude that would be able to accept the existence of extraterrestrial life without a general sense of panic, unquote. Now, let's dissect that statement for a moment. What mm-hmm. do you think has happened since Roswell as it relates to what the intelligence apparatus has done and continues to do. Well, it has it has literally created a, a, a nation unto itself, and that scares me. It's like it's almost like a parasite. It's it, it's attached itself economically to the rest of the body politic of the United States, but we don't we don't experience any benefit from direct benefit from it from it, and it's it's a constant huge financial drain and it's like are the rest of us expendable are they creating a whole new science fiction reality that that the rest of us are simply will never be privy to i mean i remember when i was a kid um disneyland i mean disneyland you go to tomorrowland and it's like this was this incredible utopian science fiction world that that they they promised that we would we would be experiencing now and it's like but now it's all behind barbed wire, and you know we see, we see uh, the rest of the country just deteriorating. And that concerns me. It's like, is is it going to just drain off all, all the resources of of the nation itself, and then just go off and do its own thing and and leave us to to God knows what here? That that concerns me. There playing a video game with us and we are the characters of that video game that you know folks this is almost like a a ufo history show and we're taking a lot of the quotes from famous people and dissecting them now let's take what general douglas MacArthur macarthur said in 1995 quote the nations of the world will have to unite for the next war will be an interplanetary war the nations of the earth must someday make a common front against attack by people from other planets unquote what do you think prompted a senior army commander of such stature as general macarthur to make such an astounding public statement jim isn't that incredible i mean was he senile (laughs) maybe (laughs) i don't think so uh according to uh bill cooper um General Douglas MacArthur, even late in World War II, they were getting uh, UFO reports in, in the uh, during the Pacific War, and his command. He said, I believe they said he had amassed as many as two thousand credible UFO reports within his command in the Philippines, and 
MacArthur was very concerned with this, and he sent these reports up the chain of command to uh, the head of what was the CIA at that point, um, I think it was the OSS. Um, right, right. The commander was uh, Wild Bill Donovan, and the, the report stopped at that point. And um, MacArthur was furious. He was absolutely furious. And so he created his own IPO, Interplanetary uh, Phenomena yeah, Interplanetary Phenomena Unit. Yes, where he he just kept uh, uh, track of all all the UFO reports within his command. And this this continued uh, when he was uh, later when he was in char- was in con- command of uh, forces in Korea. But I rather suspect, and there, there, you know, this is about the same time as the creation of MJ-12. And MJ-12 was senior military personnel, uh, officers, and so forth, who were, were who were willing to um, toe the party line and be and maintain the secrecy. And MacArthur balked at that. MacArthur was definitely his own man. And he felt something was going on, and he felt the public needed to know about it. He felt the public had a right to know about it. And so I think that's one of the reasons why he he wasn't going to keep quiet. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Truman fired him. And it was right after Truman fired him that he did go public two times and say, yeah, there we do have, there is an extraterrestrial presence that could be a possible military threat to this planet. And uh, he wasn't. <laughs> uh, I talked to uh, Colonel Corso. I, I asked him about the same question, and he said uh, he laughed. He said, "Corso," uh, he said, "MacArthur had no use for the CIA whatsoever, and he was not about to cooperate with them." So um, you know, MacArthur was definitely his own man, and and I rather suspect that uh, Admiral James Forrestal had the same attitude that he wanted to go public. But as you recall, Forrestal was uh, sent to Bethesda Naval Hospital for a nervous breakdown. Suicided. And fell f- to his death from a 16th, uh, 16th floor window. Right. So, um, uh, you know, there's this uh, a little heavy-handed uh, silencing here for pe- from personnel who knew what was going on, who wanted to go public, who were not allowed to. You know, MacArthur's statement reminds me somewhat of what President Reagan said at the United Nations in 1988. Are they saying this because they think this may happen, or are they conditioning us for a one-world government? Well, it would be it would be convenient uh, if you wanted to maintain power. Uh, if you go back and look at the uh, report from Iron Mountain. <laughs> yes. How to how to maintain political control over vast vast populations? Uh, you have to have a serious military threat, and that is what gives your mil- your government its authority over the people. And so, yes, it would be convenient to have a military threat. And in this point, we've gone through the the Russians, we've gone through the terrorists, and they said. What's what can be the next awesome military threat that would maintain control of the powers that be on this planet? All natural disaster, and then the alien invasion. There you go. Alien inva- invasion would be very useful, 
but but my question is this: in the fifty, sixty years since uh, Roswell, what have have they have they not dis- developed technologies where they could they could uh, uh, create a fake uh, UFO attack or a fake alien attack on this planet? I mean, it's like if if we have if we have fleets of of uh, UFO technology craft that the public is totally unaware of, and we suddenly unleash those in the sky, and the, the you know the general public could be totally unaware of what the, where they were, who they were from, or who had made them, would simply assume that it was an extraterrestrial attack, right? So it's like, yeah, with the technologies we have behind closed doors, it would be very easy, I would think, to stage a fake alien invasion just to maintain political control here. Have you looked into Project Bluebeam by chance? Um, I, a little bit. That's the like creating holographic. Um, exactly, you know, and I had. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. I I had uh, Robert Emenegger earlier this year yes. mm-hmm. and we talked about this and he said that the technology has been available since the 50s and it was going to be put into play in uh, Cuba uh-huh. and a submarine was going to come out mm-hmm. you know when, when Castro took over mm-hmm. and send the images up there showing Jesus Christ telling the Cuban people that the communists were the devil. But right. Kennedy apparently said, no, not to use it. So that technology, imagine if this is the 50s and we had it available. I wonder what they have now. Scary, isn't it? Scary, yes, yes, yes. But see, well, getting back to Kennedy, Kennedy was uh, a loose cannon for the CIA. He just, he was, like MacArthur, he was not going to cooperate with the CIA. And uh, he was uh, an impediment to their their ambitions. And, of course, you see he paid the price for that. And before we we touch on on Kennedy, because I want to talk about Kennedy as well, let's go back for a moment to Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. We have discussed this a lot on this show, on how he was supposed to show up for a golfing outing, and instead rumors circulated that he had a heart attack, uh, that he he may have died, that he broke a tooth eating chicken and had to be taken to the dentist. Meanwhile, he was taken to Edwards Air Force Base, then known as Morak. I spoke to someone whose father worked at that base during the time, and indeed it was closed to everyone for three days. Mm-hmm. That had never happened before. I really don't know what transpired there, but I think something happened indeed that we're not supposed to know. In your research, have you uncovered anything new as to what really went through in that alleged meeting with extraterrestrials? Well, yeah, there's some interesting things that that have surfaced. Uh, you know, I've 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 heard this story about the Eisenhower contact for years and years, and it's like uh, I just I just could not wrap my my head around that one. It just seemed too far fetched. But um, in light of uh, in light of the, the direction our country has taken since nine one one. And in light of uh, certain in, uh, other information that has come forth, I've, I've reconsidered the whole thing, and I think that uh, very likely something did something very significant did happen at Morocco in uh, February of 1954. Um, uh, it was uh, it was this last year, I believe it was, that um, uh, Cristoforo Barbato. A uh, research, an Italian researcher, 
made contact with a uh, Jesuit within the SIV, which is the the Vatican's version of the CIA. Right. And he tells a story of how um, Bishop James McIntyre of the Los Angeles Diocese was also present at Morocco with President Eisenhower when this uh, contact took place. At their request of Eisenhower to have a spiritual advisor present. Yes, Eisenhower, that was the way Ike did things. He, he, he would have uh, advisors to get, uh, uh, multiple advisors present to get kind of a, a feeling of the cross-section of how the population at large might react to this, uh, this uh, contact, of uh, this experience. Right. And so what happened at at Murak was like a microcosm of of reaction that Eisenhower expected the whole country, you know, would it would experience. But yes, uh, it was very interesting that uh, Bishop McIntyre was present. Uh, he was sworn to secrecy, and then he recanted and got on a plane to the Vatican. And uh, en route, he was he was stopped in Las Vegas and warned again not to violate his security oath. But uh, he didn't. He he, he st- stood held fast and went on to uh, Rome, where he advised uh, the Pope Pius the Twelfth, who was Pope at the time, that this this extraordinary event had happened in uh, the California desert with the president. And he felt this was important enough that the Vatican and the Pope should know also. And uh, so this story has just recently surfaced, and it gives more credibility and more depth to uh, this legend of Eisenhower's contact. And of course, six years later, the Brookings Institute recommended against public disclosure because its potentially negative impact upon the nation's scientific community. Quote, the idea of intellectually superior creatures may be anxiety-provoking. Unquote. Jim, the first thing that came to mind when I read that statement was, it's the height of arrogance to think that we are at the top of the food chain. Bernard Toinel, a French journalist uh, that I had on the show a few weeks ago, said it best. Humanity needs to be prepared to be downgraded. Why can't our scientific community accept that our laws of physics may have to be relearned or challenged? Why can't we apply the right. teachings of right. Socrates and say for once, we only know that we don't know anything? Right, right, right. But uh, it's, it's, it's also the, uh, the evolutionary imperative that we change, we adapt. Uh, the universe is not static. And a change is, is, is the order of the day within the entire universe. That's, that's, you know, the evolutionary imperative. So it's like you can't, you can't wall yourself against change. And it's like, um, but getting back to Eisenhower and, and the mindset of the, the Brookings Institute, Edwin Norris, who was of the Brookings Institution, was also present at Morocco in 1954. So you can you can imagine that, he, that he, if he had had that personal experience at Morocco, that that would have an incredible influence on the Brookings report that came out six years later. That yes, that this the the people, uh, as I understand it, as some of the, the brilliant minds and brilliant scientists and, and military people who were actually present at Morocco virtually lost their minds because they were they they encountered physics that they had no idea existed 
and they could not handle it because they were so locked into their own paradigm. And maybe rightly so. I mean, I, I can't all completely fault Eisenhower's uh, decision to, to maintain silence on this because it was so... The, 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 the population at that time was simply not conditioned to handle it. Well, is it Eisenhower or was it Truman who created or started the secrecy process? Truman started it, but Eisenhower had the option. In fact, one of the eyewitnesses present at Morocco, his name was Gerald Light, and he was a student of metaphysics. And he said he he believed that Eisenhower, in spite of all the all the um, the chaos and the emotional uh, upset that this contact had created, that Eisenhower would go f- public and make a statement about what had happened. And I think, frankly, I think uh, when Eisenhower left office in 1961, his warning about the military-industrial complex was as close as he could come to sharing his concerns about what had precipitated out of the, the Murak contact. And I sound like a broken record when I say this, but that uh, farewell speech included one more word, or a couple of more words. He actually meant to say, the military, be, beware of the military-industrial-congressional complex. But his uh, speechwriters told him, advised him not to include that part. And by the way, isn't it interesting that the CIA was created not too long after the alleged Roswell crash? And then, as you said, the Vatican created their own version, the SIV, Servicio Informazioni del Vaticano, or Vatican Information Services, after the Bishop McIntyre reported well, back I, to no, I, Pope. I, I don't agree. With, I think the Vatican already had its own intelligence service going back to World War II. Oh, okay. They had, they had an intelligence service there, but after the Eisenhower thing, I think they, they probably just set up a, a department within SIV that was exclusively interested in just the UFO contact. So you think the SIV was probably used during the during yeah, Hitler's I, time? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And, and, it, and it had already been in place because of their the Italian concern with the rise of communism in Eastern Europe. So there was already an intelligence uh, a Vatican intelligence service already in place. Direct links with Mussolini. Absolutely, absolutely. So, are they, I mean, um, considering all the, the turmoil in Europe, you know, with the war and, and then the, followed by the rise of communism, uh, they, would have, they would have had to have their own intelligence uh, service there. So, the intelligence apparatus, spiritually, militarily, don't they rule the world, obviously? Yeah, but who rules them? Well, that, I, I guess that like, could be. You keep going up. You keep going up the pyramid, and you think, well, it stops here. But then I say, wait a minute. Maybe maybe there's somebody beyond them that is controlling them. Maybe there's another agenda beyond the intelligence uh, level that that's telling them what to do. It's like, well, who's that? Isn't why? Isn't that why the top of the pyramid is separate from the pyramid where the eye is? Because we're not supposed to climate or know who that is well or is uh if you look at you know the pyramid on the dollar uh that there's you have you know the the, the solid structure below is in the three-dimensional world right that we live in but maybe that that 
the capstone is actually in a completely different dimension. Now, that's right. a scary thought. And I'm so glad you discussed this in your research because something I always want to discuss. Considering the Vatican's notorious centuries-long conflict with science, why would the Church of Rome be investing millions of dollars on a state-of-the-art observatory near Wilcox, Arizona, on Mount Graham, which is one of the largest telescopes in the world? What a contrast from Galileo's time. What are they looking for, Jim? <laughs> well, that's a stretch, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, that, uh, well, let's see. Which pope was it that opened the, the, the Fatima prophecy? John Paul II. John Paul II, he opened it? Yes, um, I think so. The yep. Vatican had always promised that on the, the, the designated day that they would open the, the, the Fatima prophecy and reveal it to, uh, to the faithful. Right. And that day came, the Pope opened the, the envelope, broke the seal, opened the envelope, read it, and they said he turned white stuck the letter back in the envelope, stuck the prophecy back in the envelope, sealed it up, and just and refused to share it. And uh, speculation is that, that there was uh, a warning about a, a, a celestial object that may be on a collision course with planet Earth. Wormwood? Hmm? Wormwood, Wormwood is what the Bible yeah, tells uh, us? Yes. No, I'm not... Don't quote me on this. This is just pure speculation on my part. But I've heard this, and I've read this in multiple sources, that uh, whatever it was scared the, the, the daylights out of the Pope, and um, since then the Vatican has been very interested in astronomy. And not just, uh, not just the, uh, the telescope down here in, uh, at uh, Mount Graham, but allegedly, um, I think in 95, was it 95, they launched in a joint secret launching with uh, NASA aboard the, uh, the Aurora. They put uh, an infrared uh, satellite or infrared telescope in orbit, also looking for this object. And if you look up uh, Secretum Omega online, it will tell about this this strange uh, Vatican project. Now, we have to take uh, our our intermission now, but before we go, I want to start preparing the, ne the second segment to talk about the implications of that alleged meeting, which, if true, are still having repercussions today. Before we go into intermission, let's talk a mo take a moment to talk about mind labs, military abductions, and then we'll we'll go back to the to the meeting with Eisenhower. Have you studied MyLabs at all, military abductions? Uh, actually, I'm just very peripherally. You know, um, I did the, sh the UFO AZ show with Ted Lohman, and we did that for seven years. I was co-host here yes. on Public Access here in, uh, in Tucson. And we talked to a lot of different abductees from time to time, and numerous, very, very numerous accounts uh, shared... That, yeah, they not only had they been abducted by little greys, but there were also military personnel present, or they were taken, they were abducted and taken to what they thought was a a military base somewhere here in in the southwest. So there has been an interesting military abduction component uh, that I've been aware of, and then other people who, who will have 
who will have an abduction just a, 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 with, with just the grays, right? And then within within hours, uh, intelligence people will come to the home, and 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 it's like they know that they've these people have been abducted. Well, how the hell can the, the intelligence people know that these people have been abducted unless they're in in some kind of contact? in cahoots? Yes. Or yeah, if this isn't some kind of a joint project, black ops project between the the, uh, the Department of Defense and the Greys, so that's that's there is that component that is uh, disturbing. Yes, and and that's something I want to discuss with you after we come back, Jim. How do we how do the listeners get in touch with your work, your artwork, your publications? Um, the best way is to go to my website, which is www.jimnicholsufoart.com, and you can find, you can read my blogs, you can visit my art gallery, you can purchase my books, uh, one-stop shop. Great. And when we come back, folks, there's so much more to cover. We're going to talk about the treaty that was allegedly made with the extraterrestrial race. Is the treaty still being applied? Has it been respected? 2012 and much more. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. We're here with Jim Nichols. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, I will be right back with more. Colin Andrews, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.